0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 582nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who connects childhood nutrition to gardening. We're talking with Patty Milligan about growing healthier eaters. Patty has been in the nutrition field for nearly 40 years. Her work and passion in the field of neuroscience of taste has led her to the field of saliva research and exploring the why behind the foods we like. Working in both clinical nutrition and integrative medicine and natural foods, Patty brings a unique blend of clinical, educational, holistic, consumer, and PR experience to the game. She and her son created the Be Memorable Foundation, in which they support individuals making a difference in novel ways for kids' nutrition, focusing on school gardens and childhood cancer. She is the author of Why is Surely Unusual, an interactive children's and nutrition and gardening book, the proceeds of which go to sponsoring school gardens. Welcome to the show today, Patty. Are you ready to rock nutrition and saliva? I am ready. (laughs) Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get you where you are
1: today?
2: Sure. You know, uh, again, in the dark ages, I always laugh. I studied nutrition in college in the late 70s, early 80s, and even the professor, as I got into that, said, you know, this is an up-and-coming field, quote-unquote, right? Uh-huh. Well, I did some research, and I realized if I'm in the field almost 40 years, nutrition really, quote-unquote, wasn't discovered till 75 years ago, so I really was kind of very early in the field, and my first job was actually working in kids with cancer, and it was working in Hawaii, and why that was so pivotal was I was clinical dietitian, but I really saw with all the different cultural blends within Hawaii, food is medicine very early in my career. Uh, the one story I'll say really quick was there would be the moms that would come in that were the local moms. So some were Samoan, some were of Asian descent or Hawaiian, and they would come in with a clove of garlic for their little children who were going through chemo. And they would rub it on their baby's feet and kiss them goodnight. And then the howlies or Caucasian like myself would come in, those moms, and they would kiss their babies and go home. And we all thought the local moms were a little bit of cuckoo, like what were they doing? And Dr. Reginald Ho, I thought he was so brilliant, is he said, you know what, we often don't understand what is passed down through history from a scientific standpoint, but we often don't pass down what doesn't work. So let's study it. And what we found out, literally, I don't know if you've ever rubbed garlic on your feet, but... uh, (laughs) You will taste it within 20 minutes, and your white blood cell count, at least in these children, went up significantly to the point where they left the hospital 2.5 days before the kids without garlic. Wow. So I'm happy to, I know. So I'm happy to say at Straub Clinic, even today in Honolulu, we allow the moms to come in and rub garlic on their feet. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I know. So I I only mention that because then from there, I did clinicals. I actually worked with a physician in opening up a healthy quick food restaurant concept, which led me to the journey to health with grocery stores. So I'm very privileged. I was early in the staff to launch Sprouts Farmer's Market, and they really said they wanted to be a journey to health for people, not a grocery store, which I thought was a little odd, but they're like, no, no, we'll bring you on board and you can help educate as the tide changes for what we unfold in nutrition and food you can help lead that so our consumers feel like they're really making wise decisions. And it was then that I just got bit with the natural food bug. But I tie it back to the kids with cancer because I, I my real love was always to understand, how do we get compliance with healthier foods? Because we know that adds to vitality. And we know that that makes a great path for a juicy, energetic life. How do we get kids to do that? And um, And then that just really kind of propelled me to to work on understanding taste bud physiology and saliva, and and here I am today.
0: (laughs) Wow. Well, and, you know, most people don't even think about that as something you would study. I, You know, I've (laughs) read things in the past how our food manufacturers are actually doing studies on how to create foods that we like more. And that's not necessarily a good thing, right?
2: Well, and you know, in their noble cause, no one wants to produce something that people don't buy. So I give them all the respect in that they entered it with the idea like, how can we make a business that actually sells? And you're exactly right. That's what They chose the path of that to study how do we hook people, really, with my foods? And often that is the trigger for finding just the right taste. But um, as as you probably are going to head, so I don't want to take away from your words, I really wanted to understand when we pop out of the womb and as we experience food in our early life, what is the connection in our brain that allows us to desire the foods that are ultimately good for us, right? And that's a different type of study.
0: And is anybody doing that?
2: Well, you know, the only place I could find, quite frankly, was outside the U.S., was in um, France. And um, I think we can all appreciate they're known for their gastronomy and their beauty within food, right? So, yeah, I was able to find a program that was studying the link within the brain. So that's neuroscience of taste to how we register with food. And then how do we understand that we're also kind of bio-individual? So how do we marry how we came into the world with the foods that are appropriate for our body?
0: And I, you know, I want to dive really deep into this topic, and that's not what we're here to talk about today. So I'm actually going to reach out to Janice, and I want you to come back, and I want to Aww. I want to come back and have that conversation because I think there's so much more that we can share about it because it, sure. it is such an important field. So. That being said, in the meantime, what we're here to talk about is why do we struggle with kids eating healthy?
2: right. you know, and you can again appreciate in in all the wonderful people you interview, it is real curious to me that in our brain matter, if you laid out our brain on a on a pavement, two thirds of the brain activity is related to food. <laughs> and probably part of that wow. everybody goes, well, of course, yeah. I mean, part of it is survival, right? I mean, we need right. food that gives us nutrients and energy. So no surprise there. But the food is very strongly linked with our reward system. It gives us pleasure. It it squirts out certain hormones in our body that make us feel really, really good and attached to memories. So I think it's fascinating that the food relationship is really much more than just putting broccoli on a plate and telling a kid to eat it. So I do think why we struggle is there's kind of like many facets, right? We're bombarded in the world with commercials that are desiring to sell certain things. We also know that some of the foods in the lifestyle that we want, which is fast and active and, you know, give me the food in my cabinet that tastes good on Monday, but tastes good, you know, six weeks from there, if you will. Mm -hmm. And all of that then plays into what ingredients are there that kind of treat that reward system as well as the nourishment system. So I do think when a child comes to a table or a family comes to a table, we know this is a busy world. And so there's many things on the plate. There's social, there's ethnicity, there's history of, of how parents had food that they bring to their children. And then the child's internal state, sometimes we forget that and that's related to the saliva. They are you know, studying hard or trying to manage this world So sometimes they come to the table and their internal mechanisms aren't really geared to eat or even discover the nuances of good fresh food because they're in fight or flight response, right? They're highly stressed. And when, I don't know about you, but so many of us, when we're highly stressed, we either want something salty, something sweet, or something really comforting. (laughs) So I do think all of those play, and not to make this more complicated, But it is much more than us demanding a child eat the broccoli on the plate. I think we have to be very aware of all these things.
0: So in in the whole scope of things, why does taste matter in this case?
2: Well, one is what we, it kind of goes back to, as I mentioned, when we pop out of the womb, you probably are aware that we have five different taste buds that are really peppered not only in the mouth, in the tongue, but also in our digestive tract. And it's there to pick up nuances within food, right? So it's bitter and salty Mm. and sour and sweet. And the newest sassy one is umami, which is kind of a hearty term for more of a texture actually than a taste. Mm -hmm. So I think when we think about taste, especially with children, what we often don't go is we're very judgy about food with kids, right? Oh, he's a picky eater. Oh, she only likes sweets. And we don't stop and go, hmm, maybe there's the ability to find those delicious molecules in those foods. They don't have taste bud maturation to pick them up. So I do think taste matters in that once the brain gets involved in understanding, oh, I recognize those delicious whether it be tofu or a Twinkie or you know whatever, then it begins to register and either desire it more or spit it back out. And uh, so I think that's why Taste Matters is for us to really understand what triggers maturation of taste buds in children. Mm -hmm. And then we definitely saw this with COVID, right? So many people lost their taste buds in this whole process. So we know that it's also quite interesting that they can get damaged throughout life. So uh, I just find it all fascinating.
0: (laughs) Right. How do we get kids to eat healthier?
2: Yes. I think there's probably three ways to go about it. One is I think whether you're a parent, an educator, or a grandparent, let's take judgment off the table. What we really want to do with children is to build a relationship of food that's not only healthy, it's nourishing, and it's curious, right? And if we set those as goals versus maybe more of the stringent, you know, teacher side, which is like, you must do this, you must do this. And I do see a lot of families that that ends up being the relationship with food. So first, let's develop our own mindset around what it is we're trying to do around food and the table. And then I think second is when we begin to build what it looks like, remember early on in life, we're really kind of being a detective and helping kids discover tastes and flavors in food so that their brain can register that and it can be a lifelong program with that. And then probably the third is actually, you know, what I call the art of eating, which is really kind of marrying all the reports out there about what a good healthy foods are. And certainly that's where gardening comes in. Right. So that's nourishment education. But I do think. Sometimes what we're missing in the U.S., and for those of you that probably have traveled worldwide, know that so many cultures appreciate sensory appreciation. Mm. There's involving all the senses to eat. And sometimes I do think that's missing here where we're driving through a drive through and we're having the child or us eat in the car on the way to the soccer field or on the way to a meeting. And we don't even remember what we ate, let alone did we chew it, right? Right. <laughs>
0: Well, and I think part of that, when you were saying that about the drive-through, it seems to me like part of the sensory of that could be the experience leading up to the drive-through, and then the the heavy smells that come off of the food. Mm-hmm. So I guess there is some of that going
1: mm-hmm.
2: on. Well, you're you're exactly right, and and there again, if the experience of eating that food is registered to the brain as comforting or pleasant, mm-hmm. you're exactly right. Those smells become very much aligned with, ooh, let's do this again and right. again <laughs> and again. <laughs> Versus, like you say, at home, if you know the parents go, oh, heavens, it's been a busy night, let's just order takeout or let's just do a microwave meal or whatever, you can imagine that sensory is also kind of truncated and that might not be so desired later on. And maybe that's good or bad, but I I do think we're influences with smells quite a bit. In fact, they often say that the first thing when we start digestion is actually the smell that we have of the food,
0: Right. you know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I've been gardening a long time. I started my first garden when I was 14 in the 70s. And so I've taught a lot of people about gardening over the years, and, and I've had a lot of tours here at the Urban Farm. And one of the things that I've noticed over and over and over again is when kids come to the yard and we're actually picking stuff right out of the yard, they're eating it. And their parents, I've had a couple <laughs> of parents say to me, oh my gosh, they've never eaten that stuff. So right. it, it seems to me like if kids are growing it, they're going to eat it.
2: Right. And and you're intuitive. You've seen it in action and just know that there's science behind <laughs> What, what you have observed, there's two kind of landmark studies that I think are kind of fun. One out of Berkeley, no surprise, mm-hmm. and one out of the UK that do say that when kids handle growing process or touch plants and get to have food directly from the ground, that their likelihood to accept more plant-based foods grow and to the point of almost 30%, 28.5% more if they get a chance, that's why I think I'm on such a mission and I love the work that you do because I really do think we can garden simply with our children, but the, we gain it in spades, the benefits.
1: Wow.
0: And, and what can we do? I'm not a parent, but as parents, what can parents do to encourage healthier eaters.
2: Yes. And again, not that I'm always into threes, but I think there's a couple of different things and maybe three practical points, probably very similar to what you experienced. If we can get children or give them exposure to farms, if you don't have a garden yourself, and again, don't put judgment on yourself. We can talk about what are some different types of gardens you can have even in your house, but expose them to farmers markets or where they're close to the food that they're actually, you know, that was grown, right? It's not packaged up. One is I do think that alerts that. And secondly, then ask some curious questions, like especially in the experience or the example you gave, you know, what if they pick a pea pod out or a tomato? What does it feel like? What is it? What does it look like to you? What jumps out at you when you first put it in your mouth? What's the first taste? You know, challenge them. So what we're doing is awakening that part of the brain that is linked to really the pleasure of food. So I do think, again, kind of broadening our response to how we want to deal with the food experience, I think secondly, may surprise you. But I do believe that we have to create an environment around eating that's calm, mm. that's mm-hmm. welcoming, that's no judgment, And I say that because it goes back to how the body works. We produce really good saliva when we're in that state. In fact, they give it a fancy name. It's a part of our nervous system that's called autonomic nervous system, which I love because it sounds like it's automatic, which it is. It's related to how our eyes blink, related to our heart and our lung function and our saliva and digestion. So if we're hooked into that nervous system, Which only happens to be engaged when we're much more in the calmer state. What happens is you get really good saliva, and then when you come to the table, your palate is well open to experience the food. And if it's also done in a delightful fashion where there's a relaxing conversation and we're emphasizing chewing, in fact, I think that's rather funny, not to take too much of a deviant here, but If I was to ask you how many times do you think your great great grandmother chewed in a day, would you have an answer?
0: (laughs) Would you have a guess? Nor would I nor would I even know mine, but a couple hundred
2: (laughs) maybe? Well, it's funny because I I, I crack up over these researchers, but there is research study this, and our great great grandmothers chewed about two hundred and forty times a day. Fast forward to now, and I'm sure in anyone listening to your podcast, they're all on the higher level, but it's thought to be as little as 60 chews in a day, up to about 120. And so now scientists are saying, hmm, maybe we really missed the boat on understanding nutrient deficiency. (laughs) Maybe it's not that it wasn't present in the food. Maybe it's that we rush that whole process. And so we don't actually give the body time to extrapolate those nutrients because we haven't really chewed very well. And I really do think we are so fast-paced that sometimes children come to the table and it's rushed or they're on a device, right? And they're watching a device and they're not totally, as we would say, mindful of eating. And so I think that's one way is that we can just simply, you know, have more time to see if the child is in a good state. There's two simple ways you can do that. One is deep breathing before eating, and that could be fun for a family. Right. Let's take... Three deep breaths. Who can you know, breathe the deepest at the table and exhale completely? Oh, my goodness. The inside of my body loves that. The nervous yeah. system marches right in line. Second is to hum. If you hum, you put your tongue on the very back palate of your upper teeth, if you will. Mm-hmm. And humming also engages this nervous system to more of a relaxed state. And we see delicious saliva come forward. So I'd say the second. And then the third would be is eat by color which i know again you have had many great speakers talk about we eat with our eyes and if we can get children to realize eating the colors of the rainbow
1: yeah
2: that you you just increase nutrients and it can be fun to shop that way for kids right who can find something purple this week we're going to eat who can find something red and now what happens is you're not talking about what to avoid in eating but you're talking about what to include
0: oh that's brilliant i love that and I'll, and i'll bet that this is all funneled into your book. Why is Shirley Unusual? <laughs> Tell us about your book.
2: It is. <laughs> so, uh, and and I, I say this and I hope people will chuckle along with me, but when my son was 10, he's now 24. So m- many years ago, school gardens were just coming in vogue, if you will. Yep. And so, his school put one in and she knew I was the nutritionist for Sprouts And so the teacher said, hey, would you help me teach? We know how to garden, and we have lessons in science, but I don't know how to bridge the nutrition piece between the two, right? Would you help me teach it? So, of course, I said, yes, I know, very forward-thinking teacher. But the crack-up is Riley comes home, and he drops his backpack, and he says, mom, don't make it boring. And, of course, I didn't know he had been <laughs> present or was listening. Right? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, oh, I heard Miss Alice ask you to help teach gardening with nutrition. Don't make it boring. I said, well, what does that mean to you? He goes, don't make it an outline and stuff. I said, okay. Hmm. He said, and I said, well, how should we do it? And he said, make it a story. And so we then wow. started talking, right? We started talking. What does that look like? And he came up with the idea. Why don't we have Shirley, unusual? We had kind of a play on that word. She's unusual because she likes vegetables. Well, in the story, then we she is teaching her classmates how to garden. And also her lunches are always rainbow, you know, colors of rainbow. And so the end of the story, of course, now she's not that unusual. All the kids love vegetables. And and then he created the boy in the story, right? There's always got to be kind of a <laughs> yep. a pair. And it was curious because he actually said, Mom, now he's 10 at this point, he said, "Uh, there's a boy that comes into the school, his name is Charles, but they tease him, Chuck the truck. And so, uh, unbeknownst to me, as we wrote through this, uh, how Shirley becomes kind to him. Shirley welcomes him to, you know, also packs a couple extra things for her lunch that she shares with him and brings him home after school, teaches him the garden, So again, the end of the story, she has become a kindness leader. And so we wrote that into the book and teachers have said, honestly, in this time and age, heavens, that that's an important lesson as much as the story of the nutrition and gardening, right? Yes,
0: absolutely. Wow. So that young man that inspired (laughs) that, does he know that he inspired that?
2: Well, it's funny. Of course, at that time, no. I mean... But what I I did when he was in high school then, and probably every mom out there can appreciate, he rolled his eyes, but he really enjoyed it. He would be the guest lecturer to come and read the story in schools and um, all the proceeds go to funding gardens. And so we would get invited to come in. And tell about Shirley Unusual, the story, well, he would then read, and I just would love this, if if all of you can see this word picture, they're sitting in a semicircle, right? And he's sitting in a chair, maybe a good, I don't know, six to eight feet away from them. By the end of the story, those little children had scooched up. (laughs) I don't even, re- I'd have to see time lapse therapy, or I mean, you know, what am I saying? Time lapse camera to show how they inched up, but all of a sudden they literally are at his feet. Wow. And so I think as a high schooler, he was very touched that he could move kids in this way. And then we would bring different foods from the garden so that they would get to taste it. And much to yeah. how you reported at the urban farm, we saw kids where their parents' jaw would drop, yep. where they're tasting... Uh, a mint leaf, and they're actually eating a pepper. And it <laughs> was pretty fun.
1: Yeah,
0: awesome. And so where do we find the book, number one?
2: Sure. Yeah, so we have it on Amazon. And, and I like to say when people can purchase it there, and then all the proceeds, so whatever zip code they have as they enter for it to be shipped, then that's the money that will go to the Master Gardener program in that area that they'll distribute for the school garden. Yeah. However, though, if there is a teacher or a family that would like to do purchase of bulk, you know, I'd say more than uh, 20 copies or so, 15 for that matter, you know, contact me directly because I'm happy just to give it as a wholesale. I mean, this is not, this is a passion project. There isn't anything out of this than awareness that I want to raise.
0: And it's so what you're saying is that it's a great teaching tool.
2: Yeah. And I'm happy to say that, of course, you're hearing it from me as the author, but I have Many teachers and parents that have said, this is such a delightful way. And in it, we have places like a workbook, not over over some, but on it, when when, uh, Shirley is kind to Charles, it'll say, what did you notice? What did Shirley do Mm -hmm. toward Charles? And it'll say, what could you do tomorrow to show kindness to one of your friends? And that starts a really lovely dialogue.
0: Nice. Nice. So I'm going to shift on you, and I would like you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it.
2: It goes back to very early in my career. And probably like you, I just, again, love what you do on the show and your guests. And it's all mindset, right? Everything starts in our mindset. So I will tell you, this is a mindset story, but when I graduated from college in my field, you had to go right away and get an internship in order to even be able to practice in the field. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, my highest thought was to go to Boston. I'm from Minnesota originally, went to school in Illinois, but Boston was the Mecca. Of nutrition research at that time. So I wanted to be there. And as a happenstance, I applied to San Diego, the VA system, because actually they paid a little stipend, but I really wanted Boston. So I call it a bit of a pivot, maybe not a failure, but a pivot of unsuccess. I called back to my mom and was sniffling and it's snowing in Minnesota in April. And I'm saying, Oh, mom, I didn't get Boston as my internship. Boo hoo, boo hoo. And she goes, oh, honey, I'm sorry. What did you get? Did you get one? And I go, I did. It's in San Diego. <laughs> and <laughs>
1: nice.
2: of course, she very yeah, very quickly said, oh, honey, I don't think it's going to be so bad. So it turned out to be what I thought is an unsuccess was a, just a pivot and a delightful tour. I would have never gotten to Hawaii for my first job. I would have never seen food as medicine in the way that I did anyway. So yeah. I would say that's how... I just embraced the change and moved on.
0: <laughs> Way cool. And what do you consider your biggest success?
2: Well, I'm going to I'm just like so many of your guests, I success always is in relationships, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm very very blessed and contented with family relationships for sure and that I've never worked a day in my life, quite frankly even though I did get paychecks and worked long hard hours yeah. because I just so love what I do. It just feels like a passion. And I know about every other guest who said that as well.
0: <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, you know, if you're doing what you love, you're right. You never work a day in your life. And yeah. that is, this is a big part of the reason I do this podcast. I, you know, this whole podcast started with me listening with to John Lee Dumas at entrepreneur oh. on fire, maybe six, seven, eight years ago. And I started to see the theme and the theme in his podcast. One of the themes is to get people out of the drudgery of their life Mm, to get people doing what they love. And that's a big message in all of my podcasts. It's like, you know, I look for people that are passionate and love what they do. And, you know, that's obviously showing up today in our conversation, So awesome. I think that's an extraordinary answer to that question. Great. What drives you?
2: Well, (laughs) great question. I I, know know this is kind of what so many people say, but if I can elevate people's curiosity Mm -hmm. and relationship with food to be one that is a beautiful dance. Yeah, I will feel that's what drives me is to create the aha moments for them and the links maybe that they never thought of. Just like we just said saliva. We just talked about how to come to the table differently with our children, if that's enough of a small trigger that brings healthier eaters about, I will be so darn happy. (laughs) Amen.
0: Amen to that. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
2: Yes. And of course, that's a challenge because there's a few. Of course, I would have to say Shirley Unusual (laughs) just because I think she does a good job of being an ambassador about gardening and food. However, another author that I love is Diane Ackerman. And if you want to fall in love with our relationship with food, I think uh, her book is called The Natural History of the Senses. And yeah, and she's a word picture author, if you know what I mean. She creates these scenes where you feel like you're right there, like you're eating a strawberry right with her (laughs) or walking in a garden right with her.
0: Cool. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
2: (laughs) To look up this wonderful poet his name is françois i'll probably murder it it's french françois chateau beyond and he lived in the 17th century but he wrote this beautiful piece about being a master in the art of living which means it draws no sharp distinction between work and play mm-hmm. labor or leisure mind or body or education and recreation he simply pursues his vision of excellence through whatever he does and leaves others to discuss which it was, and I think that just really speaks to the people I've met, admired. Really, it is seamless how they do life. Yeah!
0: Wow! 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 Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Patty.
2: Great! Thank you. This was an honor for me,
0: and and for me too. I learned a lot. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Find your book.
2: So as we we spoke, surely unusual is on Amazon. If there are people that are are curious about bulk copies or whatever. I'm happy to share my email. I'm definitely in LinkedIn as well as another way to communicate. So I don't know if you want me to say the email over that or that'll be in the show notes. Yeah, so it's very simple. It's my last name, then my first name. So it's Milligan, M-I-L-L-I-G-A-N, Patty, P-A-T-T-I, at gmail.com.
0: Perfect.